name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. How I wish God had said something, anything other than love as the supreme measure of spiritual progress. Recognizing the impoverishment of my love of both God and others is so discouraging. It's the most depressing thing I have encountered in my Christian following. Unquote, I hasten to say, although David Benner's refreshingly honest confession speaks to me and for me and sets the tone for today. We are asked to do one thing or one thing above all, and that one thing above all gathers everything else into it. That is to love the God who is love and those he loves. And it is the one thing that is least likely to be gotten around to, at least by me, as I go back into the daily round of all the tasks that keep me occupied from day to day. And the most likely to induce, therefore, guilt in me and in many of us. Or at least the bleak reflection, come time for the confession next week, on what we did or did not do, sins of commission or omission, those promptings of the heart we simply overrode or tried to outrun and which now haunt us as they catch up with us once again especially when those we should or could have loved are out of reach, perhaps forever. What is love? Good question. It's been asked before and answered. Here's another one. To let someone else, love is to let someone else be or become all that they can. To put their well-being ahead of your own, if that is possible, and to take every opportunity to do so, to act at your cost for their benefit. It's not just thinking someone else is lovely, even if they are, or making yourself think so, although that is something. It is making them lovelier in their own eyes and in God's, if you can. That's a tall order, is what I believe is being asked. So when the woman with the coins in today's reading finds the one coin that is lost, I think that that's what her rejoicing is about. A lost opportunity is recovered, a closed book is reopened, a kindness is returned, an email is answered, a relationship is reestablished. A trust that you lost or squandered is restored. This is a lost coin, which is what makes this so interesting. It's very tempting to think of this as in some way God reaching out to those who are among the lost and finding them, giving them the gift of new life, if you like, and bringing them into that life of repentance, which, as Luther said, we'll hear more of Luther as we approach 2017, repentance, which is our daily dying, we're born again once, and then every day we die a little more and more to make that birth turn into growth. But perhaps this is part of that 
daily dying, this lost and found coin or this lost and found sheep. When Jesus says, just so, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He may not be talking of just once and forever as we take it. But this business again of working with God, working out our life, back on a steady footing, on an even keel, good to go. Now the reason we die is to help us die to the sins that keep popping up in our lives. I say we are very much Romans 8 church here, and we are, but you can't have Romans 8 without Romans 7. And on that, I'm very much convicted to a Reformation reading that Romans 7 describes the life of the Christian, period. Paul after his conversion and not just looking back. If there's one thing we want to do with sin rather than die because of it, it is to avoid it altogether. Having said that, we can do better on that score if our business then is simply one of keeping score of how little sin we have committed. Try to keep our noses clean and avoid trouble. Best way to do that, and trouble comes really when you have started hurting someone else, may be to have as little to do with someone else as possible. That served Christians very well over the years. And if they have a way of hurting us, that may be the best way, the high road we can tell ourselves, that keeps one out of the quid pro quo of something worse than benign neglect, of keeping score, comparing and competing, for instance. Yes, we are to love one another. And that means, and this is the tough news, sticking your neck out and sticking with it, persevering, taking chances, getting rejected, giving and forgiving regardless. Not sitting back, not sitting pretty, not sitting in judgment from the safety and sanctity of your own high place of personal piety and purity means having the guts and the grace to go back to the messes you made and to clean them up. That's repentance, not just feeling bad, not even saying you're sorry, which is something, but restoring the reverent esteem with which you sought to support someone else. Then having rebuilt that protective wall around them, waiting for windows and doors to appear in God's time from the inside. St. Paul, of course, has every reason to say sorry. He has put his brothers and sisters to death. Now he has to go back and say he was wrong. In God's sovereign goodness, it is precisely the immensity of his sin that vouchsafes the depth of Paul's repentance and also God's repentance, if you like. Because in these readings, we're looking at God as repenting in the sense of turning around 180 degrees and reaching out. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. We can read much more about that 
in the accounts in the Acts and in Paul's other correspondence. To what does he credit the quickness of God's repentance, of God's reaching out and changing his heart, of God's turnaround in his life, to the fact that he, Paul, didn't know? How could he? How could he imagine that God's game was not about keeping score, about justice, but that God's game was about mercy? Not about judgment in the end at all, as if anyone could get through life unscathed by sin. And not about mercy in the sense that such a thing might be possible without judgment, because it's not. Now, for a Pharisee like Paul, life was all about judgment. And that meant maintaining a private morality with a very shiny public face one in which expertise in the legal stratagems which allowed one to keep one's scrupulosity in strict control, to see oneself as above sin because one knew the law flawlessly and kept it faultlessly, and to seek above all to keep oneself away <clears throat> from the possibility of being tainted by association of any kind with those who failed to come up to one's own expectations. Trying to follow this path, and they believed they did, allowed the Pharisees of Paul's day and ours to stay out of debt, if you like, to God. It fostered the illusion that they were indeed without sin. Their only problem was that their foolproof inner security system, which kept their inner life pristine, also kept God at a safe distance. Well, you don't really need him around if you figured out what you have to do to keep him off your back. Worst possible scenario was having him dropping in unannounced to check things out because there, in fact, is no telling what he might find, despite all your good intentions. What he might find? Why should he find anything? Well, the trouble starts, as Mark Muldoon writes, and I quote, when we begin to believe that our interior life is merely a self-improvement program to be achieved by the ego at the expense of our relationship with others. When our personal concern for our own spiritual purity trumps our relationship to one another in community and even our relationship to God. We evangelicals are the inheritors of a tradition perpetuated and passed down by those who sincerely believe that by absolute obedience to purity laws, God's love can be guaranteed. He owes us and he will give it quid pro quo, it's up to us. It didn't start out that way, and heaven knows the reformers did their best, Luther supremely, to tell us that this was all about grace, all about God's gift, that we do nothing. God does everything. We'd rather be responsible for something. Thank you. This is America. Small wonder we are haunted then, even in our perfection, by guilt, a morbid guilt, which becomes aggravated and intensified the greater our narcissistic quest for perfection. We become obsessive compulsives, finding salvation in self-control. 
I mean, if you've been given new birth, if you've been born again, everything's supposed to go right from then on, right? <laughs> right. No wonder we are soon running scared at trying to avoid both God and the devil with equal intensity. But if God is in Christ's principal role is as judge, waiting to turn us over to the devil anyway, then what is the difference? Now God as judge will have a few things to ask us. And as we go through scripture, it all seems to boil down to this. How was your love life? <laughs> How well did you love? How well did you let me love you? And did you get to the place where you realized that I loved you before you did anything to make me love you? I loved you when you were at your worst, when you were running away from me. I pursued you with my love. That's how it worked. That's how it works. It does not work any other way. Paul got that. And in that strength, he found the strength to go back to those who he had persecuted, who were ready to kill him if their faith would have allowed them. He found the strength in the death of the cross to experience the power of the resurrection. A lost coin does not save itself. A lost sheep is as good as dead, as one writer said, and a lost coin is a dead asset. Repentance is not God calling us to spruce up our act, pull ourselves together, and put our best foot forward so God might welcome us in. Repentance is dying, going down with the cross, and then being lifted up by the power of the resurrection. Everything is about the power of the resurrection. But God does not give new life to people who are not first dead, dead men and women. You want new life, you'd better die to the old Adam and the old Eve, and you don't do that all at once. You do that day to day, and you let the grace of God give you the strength to see yourself as you are and then change you into what you are in God's eyes, what you will become. Paul learned to let go of any attempt to control his own life, to pay the debt he owed to God. He learned that God had already made good for what he could not, could never make good. And that the God whose proper work, as Luther says, whose opus proprium is mercy, not justice, had done for Paul what he would do for anyone who gave him the chance. Full pardon, full forgiveness, unconditional in this life and not just in the next. And freedom, the freedom to love, to live beyond the walls of our own prison, to live and love for others. Free from the guilt of the suffering we have inflicted on others, blindly, unknowingly, in unbelief, as we lived from the center of that illusory sense of who we were, who we thought we were. Free now to let the living Lord Jesus do the living 
for us and in us, born anew as he is within each of us, to have his way with us as we die daily to self. For in the end, we're invited to remember this. Our only hope lies not in anything that you and I will do for Jesus. And may we do much for Jesus and much for his kingdom. Our hope is not in that. Our hope is not what we will do for Jesus. It lies in what Jesus has done for us. The grace of God written on the desert that is our hearts by the blood of the cross. And from that, and only from that, the power of Jesus' resurrection, living through us now and through eternity. Amen.